So like Andy said, uh, my name is Aaron, and um, I'm one of the pastors here. So glad you could join us this morning. Um, I'm really excited that it's getting a little bit colder outside because like, I don't like sweating inside my house and everything. So um, yeah, so just to let you get, uh, get you caught up a little bit. So we've, have been, um, our, uh, we've been preaching through the first 11 chapters in the book of Genesis this fall. And it's mid-October, and we're still in the first couple chapters. So um, that's not because we're slow. We're intentionally slow. And uh, so this is the last week, like what Andy said, um, this is the last week um, that we'll be in the very beginning of the book. And we're going to be picking up the pace from here on out. And we're planning up on finishing this sermon series by December. And then we're going to be jumping into the Gospel of Matthew after that. So we're excited about that as well. So Brandon, uh, he's the other pastor here. Um, he's done a really good job preaching the last few weeks and explaining how the reason that we're slowing down and parking here in the first couple chapters of Genesis is because there's just so many really important themes here in the first few chapters of Genesis. And that those themes right there just really set their tra- the trajectory um, for just how the rest of the storyline of Scripture and like plays itself out and how... Um, and how our lives really play itself out as well. So there's just a trajectory like here in the first couple chapters. So that's why we see this as a really important and worthy investment um, just for the life of our church. So Brandon, um, he's the one who preaches here regularly. Um, whenever he preaches, like man, he just has these really uh, great uh, inter- sermon introductions and everything. And I always have sermon envy whenever he does that, which is kind of the dumbest kind of envy you can have. But um, I don't really have uh, I don't really have a fancy intro this week, so um, uh, all I'll really say is that like I'm just going to be talking about um, the cultural mandate in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, and some of you might be like the cultural what eight? No, no, the cultural mandate. Okay, and it's totally okay if you've never heard of that phrase before or that word. Um, but it is pretty important because understanding what the cultural mandate means sets the trajectory for how we understand mission in the local church. So every sermon in one way or another explains a little bit about like, what River City is like and what we value. And this sermon in particular is probably going to be uh, explaining that a little bit more so than usual. So, so as I talk about this passage in Genesis, I'll be explaining a little bit about like, the philosophy behind like why we value what we do and why, the, why we do some of the things that we do here at River City. Sounds good. All right, so let's pray. So God, thank you so much, so much that um, you gave us the cultural mandate and like how there's a trajectory with that. And we pray that your spirit, um, man, just as like Brandon was preaching um, a few weeks ago about how it was hovering over, your spirit was hovering over the waters and just like, um, and just bringing order out of chaos. I pray that you'll just bring order out of chaos um, just in our hearts and minds and just that you'll be really actively present here. So I pray you'll just speak through me and speak through your word and I pray you'll just give us the ears to hear as well. Yeah, so thanks so much, and we love you. Amen. All right, so if you missed the first few weeks of the sermon series, we've talked about how the purpose of the creation narrative in Genesis 1 isn't primarily to show us the how of creation. Rather, it's meant to show us the who of creation. So if you want to know more about that, you can check out our sermon archives, but suffice to say that when we read these chapters in Genesis, we should notice that they show us the nature and the character of God, which should ideally lead us to an attitude and posture of worship in our hearts and minds. And that's because, and this is going to sound like the most obvious thing in the world, 
but the Bible is a book about God. So, which, by way of inference, means that the Bible isn't a book about me. The Bible is for me, but the Bible is not primarily about me. And the opening chapters of Genesis are no exception. So author Jen Wilkin has written the following in her book, Women of the Word. So she says, When I was younger, one of the things that I got backwards seems so obviously backwards now that it seems almost embarrassing to admit. I failed to understand that the Bible is a book about God. The Bible is a book that boldly and clearly reveals who God is on every page. In Genesis, for example, it does this by placing God as the subject of the creation narrative. And that's what we see in the first five, in the first five days of the creation narrative in Genesis 1. God is at the center of, that, of the narrative, and the purpose of the creation narrative being in our Bibles isn't so that we can be scientific nitpicks about stuff, but rather so that we can know in our minds who God is and subsequently love him and worship him. And the reason why that's important is because the heart cannot love who the mind does not know. In the first five days of the narrative, there's a tempo to how God's nature and character are on display. His power, his creativity, his presence is near and not distant. His, uh, his declaration of what is good is deemed as the final word on the matter. And his authority and love are intertwined in a way that is virtually impossible for any of us humans to replicate in any meaningful way. And he displays and shows his nature and character through authoritatively, authoritatively creating light and dark, sea and sky, a fertile earth, light and day, lights of the day, lights of the night, fish and birds. And then we come to day six of his creative endeavor. And God starts out by creating the animals and everything that creeps along the earth and everything that will inhabit the land. And right after that, that's where we'll pick it up in verse 26. Chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So God uniquely creates human beings in his image. Now, Brandon did a great job explaining what this means three weeks ago, but being made in God's image doesn't mean that we physically look like God. But rather, it means that we uniquely have the capacity to personally know God in a way that your dog Fluffy doesn't. So we have the unique capacity to personally know God and to reflect his nature and character and to relate to the rest of the creation on behalf, on his behalf as his representatives. So simply put, being made in God's image means that we have the capacity to know God and to represent here in him here in our lives, including here in Dubuque. And that leads us to verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. 
fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So after creating the man and woman in his image, this is what God tells them to do in verse 28. And the fancy title that's often give, given for what God tells them to do in verse 28 is the cultural mandate. Again, you don't need to, you don't need to brag to your friends at work that you know what that word means. All right, all right. But there's a mandate given by God to create culture. He gives them their identity of being made in God's image, which instantly gives them an infinite amount of dignity, value, and worth. And then out of the overflow of that, he tells them what to do. And, and what he tells the man and the woman to do is to be his representatives on earth by way of ruling over all, all other living things on earth. Also, the man and the woman are commanded to be fruitful and fill the earth with more image bearers, and their goal is to subdue the earth and to keep it in submission under the kingship of God. Which, let's be clear, what God is telling them should be understood as taking responsibility and stewarding what is entrusted to them. And that shouldn't be understood as domineering their rule. Because the latter there that's not leadership that reflects the nature and character of God. And if we're seeing anything in the first couple chapters of Genesis, it's about reflecting the nature and character of God. So along those lines, later in Genesis 2.15, which is outside the passage that we're studying today, like there, are two, there are more details of given of what happens on that day of creation, whereby Adam, God puts Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it. Now at first glance, to work and to keep it seem like pretty straightforward commands, but there's actually something uh, more going on here because the he- we don't talk a lot about Hebrew words because like, you just don't need to know that stuff. But the Hebrew words for to work, to work it and to keep it, um, those are the same Hebrew words that are consistently used on a constant basis for, to describe what goes on in the tabernacle and the temple later on in the Old Testament. So, like, when the Jewish nation just kind of becomes more formalized and, like, they're just, like, more organized and everything, there's a tabernacle, which, like, they go to worship with the presence of God is there. Then there's eventually a temple, and then, like, there's the presence of God is there, and people go to worship God there. And it's just, like, and the same Hebrew words that are used for what goes on in the tabernacle and the temple, that's the same Hebrew words that are to work it and to keep it, that he tells Adam. You know, in my church that, um, that I went to in college, uh, so one of the pastors was giving a sermon about this passage uh, here in Genesis, uh, and he said that these verses weren't primarily alluding to anything about environmental stewardship or creation care, which kind of offended my sensibilities because I was an environmental science major in college. So I was like, whatever, dude. But he said that these verses were centrally and ultimately a call for creating an environment of worship. And I was like, whatever, dude. Like, clearly it says not that. But then it was about a decade later, I was studying this passage more in depth, and I was like, eh, well, maybe he's right. So. Because that's how this passage fits with the overall storyline of Scripture of scripture. There's a mandate given to the man and the woman to go forth and make more image bearers, 
fill the earth with the glory of God so that the whole earth knows God, follows God, and worships God. That's ultimately and centrally what the cultural mandate meant for Adam and Eve. So that's what it meant for them, but what does the cultural mandate mean for us here in Dubuque in 2018? The answer is that the fulfillment of the cultural mandate in Genesis 1.28 is the great commission in Matthew 28 in the New Testament. The fulfillment of the cultural mandate in Genesis 1.28 is the great commission in Matthew 28 in the New Testament. So let's check out Matthew 28, which I mentioned is often called the Great Commission. So Jesus died in our place for our sins, rose from the dead. He's on a mountain with his 11 remaining disciples. And then we'll just pick it up there in verse 18. Then Jesus said to them, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So can you hear the echo of the cultural mandate from Genesis 1? If you can, that's not a coincidence. (laughs) Like, God set it up that way on purpose. Like, the Bible wasn't written in such, like, wasn't inspired and authored, like, ultimately by God in such a way that, like, there were just all these random stories just jumbled together, you know? But like, no, there's like a consistent storyline throughout the storyline of Scripture. So like, if you hear echoes there, that's not, a, that's not a coincidence because the Great Commission is the fulfillment of the cultural mandate. And again, do you hear those echoes? Be fruitful and increase in number. Go and make more image bearers. Go and make more disciples. Fill the earth with the glory of God with more image bearers, and go fill the earth with more disciples. Men and women have been given identity as image bearers of God and sent on mission in the world. Men and women in the church have their identity rooted in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and are sent on mission in the world. The man and the woman were God's representatives in the world and sent on mission And men and women in the church are God's representatives in the world sent on mission. Yeah, and the incredible thing is that the Great Commission in Matthew 28 is for everyone who belongs to Jesus and who has surrendered to him as king. And this commission is not selfishly reserved for pastors or professional. The Great Commission is for all of us. And side note, it makes a lot of sense that making disciples is the fulfillment of the cultural mandate because if you clumsily think of the cultural mandate as getting married and having a lot of babies, it's like, okay, well, how do people who are single or people who struggle with infertility fit in the mission of God? So, um, yeah, like, yeah, as I was thinking about this this week, it's like, you know, marriage and babies are just really good things. You know, like, I have experience with both, so you can't accuse me of that, okay? But, so please don't hear me say anything differently, but marriage and babies aren't the big E on the I chart when it comes 
to fruitfulness in the kingdom of God, like making disciples is. Yeah, and we need to soberly remember that the outworking of God's kingdom isn't centered on building our own biological family, but it's centered on building the family of God. And we do that through making disciples in the local church. So let's get really practical. There are four big applications that I want us to see in connection between the cultural mandate in Genesis 1 and the Great Commission in Matthew 28. So first one, first big application. Mission is an outworking of our identity. Mission is an outworking of our identity. So there's identity language in both Genesis and Matthew. So in Genesis, the man and the woman are created in God's image, and the outworking of that is that they're sent on mission. So on Matthew, we should notice that believers are baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And when somebody is baptized in the New Testament, it's symbolic of a new beginning and a new identity for that person. When we become followers of Jesus, we have a new identity of belonging to God through faith in Jesus. So I have a lot of uh, things that I am, like, and a lot of things that people say that I am. So uh, I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm a college graduate, I'm a guy from the Midwest, um, I'm a pastor, I'm a Timberwolves fan because I hate myself. <laughs> but all of those things are completely worthless compared to who God says that I am. God says that I belong to him through faith in Jesus, and that's my ultimate identity over and above everything else in my life. And if you belong to Jesus and identify with him as your forgiver and your leader, that means you worship him on the deepest level of who you are, and consequently, you want to become like him because we become like whatever or whoever we worship. And over time, if you worship Jesus, you know what you become? You eventually become a missionary. And that's because we worship a missionary. So here's the deal. When someone is sent to a specific place with a specific purpose, that, per- that person is a missionary. In the case of Jesus, he was sent to earth where he traded the comforts of the heavenly culture for the discomforts of the earthly culture. And that was a big deal because he was born in the barn, swung a hammer with his dad, mourned the death of his cousin, sweated blood, and was just brutally murdered by the people who hated him. Like his whole, his life was filled with discomfort and inconvenience. But he also came with a specific mission to preach the gospel, die for our sins, and rise from the dead so that he could forever be our mediator, our forgiver, our leader, and our substitute sin bearer. So do you see the point in all this? Jesus is God as a missionary. Jesus is God as a missionary. If your identity is rooted in belonging to Jesus, then you eventually need to wrestle with the fact that you worship a missionary. And keep in mind that Being a missionary who makes disciples here in Dubuque isn't about doing better and trying harder. No, no, no. Like, being a missionary starts with your identity. Like, I belong to Jesus. I'm perfectly loved by the Father because the Father perfectly loves Jesus because Jesus lived the life that I was supposed to live and he died the death that I was supposed to die. And all the approval that Jesus earned from the Father in his perfect life here on earth, he's given to me, he's given that approval to me because I'm awesome, but because I have faith in Jesus and I put my faith in him. 
That's my identity. Like, I belong to Jesus. And the overflow of that identity is that I'm sent on mission here in Dubuque. That's not a do-better, try-harder kind of thing. That's just being true to who God says that I am. And that's good news because when making disciples goes awesome, uh, that doesn't inflate my personal feeling of value and worth because I'm making disciples from identity and not for identity. And when making disciples doesn't go well, I'm not crushed by that because I'm making disciples from identity and not for identity. So let's talk about application number two. So mission is for men and women. Mission is for men and women. So the contributions of both men and women are needed to fulfill the Great Commission in Matthew 28 of making disciples in and through the local church. And I am not saying that because I think it's some kind of PC agenda thing to say. I'm saying that because God gave the cultural mandate to both the man and the woman together. He didn't privately give it to Adam. No, no, no. Like, look closely at the passage. Like, he gives it to both of them. He makes them both in their image. Then he gives, he, he gives the cultural mandate to both of them. God did not intend the cultural mandate to be accomplished by only one gender. And since the fulfillment of the cultural mandate is the great commission, then of course the mission of making disciples in the local church is given to both men and women. God does not intend the mission of making disciples in the local church to be accomplished by only one gender. Just as the man and the woman were commissioned in Genesis 1 to spread the glory of God as his representatives on earth, men and women are now commissioned to spread the glory of God through the gospel as his ambassadors to the ends of the earth through the making of disciples, including here in Dubuque. And I'm just going to hone in on the contributions of women for a moment just because um, I think if there's one gender that tends to get the shaft in the church, it tends to be women. Um, some people might quibble with me about that. Like, I don't think that's a controversial thing to say. Um, so maybe this doesn't mean much from, from me uh, because I'm a guy, but um, I'm really thankful that so far, um, by God's grace, we've created a culture here at River City where the contributions of women are not seen as just important or good, but we strive to see, the, see their contributions as essential and indispensable in the mission of making disciples. The kingdom of God does not advance in fullness without the contributions of women. And again, I'm not saying that as some kind of PC thing, but I say that based on the authority and the clarity of the scriptures that we're studying this morning. Women in the church should never be considered um, regarded as extras or nice but not necessary, because if we do, we're creating an environment in our church that is foreign to the scriptures. So instead, we seek to continually create a culture in our church where the contributions of women are seen as both essential and indispensable for this making of disciples. So let's talk about application number three. Mission aims for fruitfulness. Mission aims for fruitfulness. So in the cultural mandate, the aim was be fruitful and make more image bearers and fill the earth with the glory of God. Similarly, in the Great Commission, the aim is fruitfulness. Jesus says, 
go and make disciples. What does that mean? So Jesus, he says what it means. Go and make disciples. He says it means two things. One, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Which in scripture, people who get baptized are people who are deciding to follow Jesus as the king of their lives. So making disciples is about, first, about seeking people out who aren't following Jesus. And two, making disciples is about teaching people to obey everything I've commanded you. That's what Jesus says. So those people who have decided to follow Jesus, making disciples is about helping them know, love, and follow Jesus in fullness and maturity. So fruitful disciple-making, according to Jesus, isn't about making superficial converts, nor is it about ignoring people who are far from God. Rather, disciple-making is about seeking out people who aren't following Jesus, seeing them transformed by the gospel, and helping them grow in the gospel into maturity on the level of the heart. And according to Jesus, this is how he defines fruitfulness. That's the goal, and that's what mission aims for that kind of fruitfulness. But when it comes to making disciples, it's often easy for individuals and churches to to aim at things that Scripture doesn't necessarily aim at. Let's pack this place out every Sunday because that would make us feel pretty successful and good. Let's be obsessed with attendance. I'm pro-attendance. I like it when all the chairs are filled. You know, but that's not the goal in and of itself. Let's help people stop making bad decisions with their lives, even though they may or may not have their hearts changed by the gospel. Let's borderline manipulate people into making decisions to follow Jesus. When we do things like this or have these kind of motivations, what we're actually doing is tacking fruit on fruitless trees. And that's just not compatible with what Jesus tells us to do in Matthew 28. Like, seriously, there is a big difference between gathering a crowd and planting a church. The former often results in the Frankenstein, Frankensteining of the church, while the latter is often an outworking of fruitful disciple-making. So here at River City, we strive to take aim at the latter because we want to define fruitfulness and success in the way that Jesus defines those things. And just as an aside, um, and this is just for free, but... Um, keep in mind that seeking out people who are far from God and like seeking out people who aren't following Jesus and growing spiritually ourselves, um, those things aren't meant to be mutually exclusive. They often go really well together, which is why I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus sandwiches the, these things so closely together in Matthew 28. That's because seeking people out who aren't following Jesus is often a catalyst for our own spiritual growth. So, for example, if your coworker or neighbor isn't following Jesus, uh, you'll be uh, faced with the, with the real question of, do I want my coworker or neighbor to follow Jesus? Do I have God's heart for this person that God has placed in my life? Do I authentically love this person? then that will naturally move you to pray to God to be changing your heart and for God to be awakening spiritual curiosity in your coworker or neighbor. And when spiritual conversations do come up with your coworker or neighbor in the midst of authentic friendship with them, 
they'll probably bring stuff up that you've never heard of, which happens tons of times. And that'll lead you to prayerfully depend on God and trust him to help you converse with kindness and patience and dignifying respect as you reflect the gospel in your character as you winsomely dialogue with your friend. And that'll lead you to conversationally take appropriate risks at times and risk being misunderstood by your friends. And in the midst of that, you'll be faced with the sanctifying dilemma of either either trusting God or trusting yourself to do the heavy lifting of changing your friend's heart. And in the midst of this, you'll need to remind yourself to believe the gospel for yourself, that you belong to Jesus and that you can turn away from finding your identity and the approval you receive from your friend and instead to find your identity fully in the approval that Jesus had given you in the gospel. So you don't need to like just live in fear. And do you see what do you see what all is going on there? Like you're growing spiritually in the midst of being on mission to your friend who isn't following Jesus. Being on mission is often a catalyst for growing spiritually. That's why we have a core value of which if you haven't memorized this, that's totally fine. <laughs> it's buried in some document somewhere. That's why we have a core value of maturity through mission here at River City, because God's design for the outworking of the Great Commission is that we grow ourselves in obeying all, is, all he has commanded us as we're on mission. So mission is, not, is certainly not the only catalyst for grow, growing spiritually, but it's definitely one of the ways that he intends us for us to grow. So and God is just like, like in the Great Commission, he's just sandwiched those things together. So let's talk about application number four. So mission should ideally be in community. So mission should ideally be in community. So you'll notice in the cultural mandate, mission was given to the man and the woman in community with each other. So mission was never intended to be a lone ranger kind of thing. This is also true for the Great Commission because the mission of making, making disciples was given collectively to the disciples, and it certainly applied to the collectively to the entire body of the local church. So in other words, mission should ideally be in the context of community. So on the, yeah, so up on the screen. So this is a chart that will hopefully describe what I'm talking about. So... Um, so before I was a pastor at River City, I was um, on staff with InterVarsity, which is a campus ministry um, that's pretty big um, over on the other side of the river. And um, so I have a friend of mine um, who is in his late 50s, and he's worked on college campuses here in the Midwest for at least 35 years. So he's in his late 50s. And man, like in college ministry world, if you're in your late 50s and still working with college students, I mean, like, you're like a fossil, you know, it's like, you're, you're really old and experienced and wise. Okay, so this is what my friend, um, my really wise friend said. So he's made the following observation about how the landscape of mission has slowly been changing among people in general and not just college students. So he said that when he was in college in the early 80s, someone who wasn't a Christian, someone who wasn't following Jesus, would typically have the... Fr- First, have the gospel shared with them, which that's what the word like evangelism means up on the screen. Then they would become a Christian, and then they would join a Christian community. So 
my friend said that the process is still pretty similar today, like the same things are still present there, but just the order of those events are just now out of, just in a different sequence. So now, the average person who isn't a Christian and is seeking, seeking out the things of God and just like wants to know what that's all about, first they want to join a Christian community, and in the context of that community, the gospel is shared and authentically lived out, and then eventually they become a Christian. That's when they decide to follow Jesus in fullness. So this, what my friend has said is that like the same stuff is happening. The sequence of those things is just in a different order. And anecdotally, I can say that this is definitely true, and I think you can say that as well. And just to be clear, there are other cultures in the world where this is less true, but this is especially true in our culture and especially true for younger generations. And this is what largely informs our philosophy of mission here at River City. Because if you hang around River City enough, what you'll notice is, with few exceptions, people here strive to authentically be on mission to their friends, neighbors, and coworkers with other people from River City. Like, there's not a ton of Lone Ranger mission going on. And along those lines, if you haven't noticed, people in our small groups are kind of all over the board spiritually. You know, and that's not by accident. There's plenty of things that are happening in our church that are, are by accident. That's not one of those, one of the things. Like, that's by design. So, the, like, up on the, up on the screen, like, the, the join a Christian community part, um, where the gospel is shared and authentically lived out, our small groups are an example of that. So there's some people in our small groups, who, some people who aren't following Jesus who come to small groups, and there are some people who are following Jesus who come to small groups, and there are people who are everywhere in between on those, that spectrum that come to our small groups. And we see that as good, and we see that as healthy, and we see that as authentic, because the, because the gospel is uniquely displayed in the context of community. When we study, and when we study scripture together in small groups and we find the gospel naturally emanating from the text like together, it's like, that's good for everybody. Because wherever you are on that spectrum, it's like what you need is to like turn to Jesus and like find your identity in the gospel. That's what your next step is. That's the next step for everybody. Yeah, and the point with all this is that people often want to belong before they believe. And that's a good thing. People want to belong before they believe. And here at River City, we totally embrace that. So today, the invitation to you is, come be part of this. Find your identity in belonging to Jesus. And out of the overflow of that identity, come be on mission together with us in the context of community. Part of following Jesus is authentically being on mission in the context of community. So in what ways is he calling you to surrender to him and to follow him into that? Communion is about remembering Jesus and surrendering to him. That's why we do communion every week, because the flow of the gospel is God initiates and we respond. When we hear the word of God corporately proclaimed to us, that's God taking initiative and then it's on us to respond. And the symbolic way that we do that is through communion. And that's why we do that after the preaching. So the bread symbolizes his body, and the juice represents his blood. 
Those things were broken and shed for you. He took the initiative towards you. He took the hit for us. And that's why we respond to him in humble submission and follow him together in community for the mission of making disciples. So if Jesus is your forgiver and leader, we invite you to take communion this morning. So the worship team, they're going to be coming on up. Um, They're going to be playing three songs. Um, There are two communion stations in the back, in the back of the room. And you can go on up there whenever you feel like you are spiritually ready after talking to God for yourself. So you don't need to be a member here to take communion. Um, You only need to belong to Jesus. Let's pray. So God, we're really thankful that, like, um, you don't just tell us what to do, man. Like, you just really tell us who we are, first and foremost. And, yeah, we love you, and we're thankful for you. And, yeah, we just pray that, like, as um, just in a really healthy and sustainable way that you'll just um, um, be continuing to, like, just send us on mission and empower us, like, on mission here in Dubuque in the tri-state area. So, and that's for your glory. That's definitely not for our glory. That's for yours. Yeah, so thanks for empowering, thanks for sending, thanks for loving us, and thanks for telling us who we are. We love you.